House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. You are back in the House of Mystery, and of course, I'm Al Warren. Now, co-host is he's back after a couple of weeks off. Actually, all of us are back kind of after a little bit of a vacation, and we've got Mr. Uh, Dave Martino. He's one of the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> New kids. Oh, oh, sorry, yeah. Yeah, I'm more old school. Right? <laughs> New kids on the block. Doesn't that make you feel old? Yes. I mean, I'm just, I'm yes. just you know, not in a bad way. It's just funny that you were... It, it, I, I went with my wife to see them. Good <laughs> job. <laughs> wow. I, I'm surprised that uh, they're still going, but I guess yeah. their fans aren't too old that they're retired, so... Not, not yet. Not yet, but you're getting there. You're getting there, right? <laughs> yeah, they're a little younger than I am. <laughs> Just a little bit, you know? Now, was... that's really bad when you go see a band and they're younger than you. Yeah. Well, well the band itself is around my age. Yeah, I'm 51, yeah. so they're, they're right around there. Wow. But the, the fans are just a little bit younger. Oh, they, oh, they weren't all 12 years old? No. No, that, that was back in uh, 88. <laughs> <laughs> that was last century. Um, <laughs> I know, right? They don't count Crazy. Like 20th century. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're getting old, I'm saying, you know. That is true, uh, man. Well, yeah. So <laughs> I made the cover of Books and Buzz magazine. Yes. So what do you think? It was awesome. <laughs> no, it was. It was cool. I couldn't believe it. I went in for all the photos, and I come back out, and then they send me them all. And I thought, when I first looked, I thought, how did you get so old? <laughs> <laughs> when did this happen? This isn't me. You're sending me the wrong pictures. <laughs> Who's this fat old guy? Oh, my God. That's terrible. No, no. Well, and the article looks good. So it's good. It's a good yeah. thing. Jeez, I'm popular. Just in time for retirement. That's right. <laughs> okay. Well, now, speaking of, I don't know what we're speaking of. We're speaking of books. So now today we've got um, a really interesting story, and it's a number one bestseller. And uh, we've got the... Uh, writer here and uh, the book is called the colony faith and blood in a promised land and that's sally denton thank you for being here sally thank you well sally first of all what would get you into writing this kind of a book because this is uh, just so so people know this is kind of about uh, a mormon settlement or outpost i guess is kind of the the setting of this place um, that the story is um, but what made you go go there? Uh, yeah, well, it's a it's about the uh, massacre. It starts with the murder of three young mothers and nine of their children, and the wounding of several others uh, in a remote part of northern Mexico. Uh, it's actually a fundamentalist Mormon offshoot community, not a uh, not a uh, an official uh, colony from uh, the mainstream Mormon Church or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but um, uh, the, the the story is a, is about the murder, and that's where I where I began. Uh, I, I was really moved emotionally by the tragedy, and 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 just uh, was, um, I mean, for me to look into something like that is not really unique in my own career. This is my ninth book, 
and I all of my books have been about um, organized crime and drug. Tra- I've been writing about drug trafficking, and this is in a in an area of the uh, car- the uh, drug cartels of, of northern Mexico. Uh, so this was right up my alley as far as the the genre that I've been working in for the last thirty five years. I've written about um, two two different books about uh, the uh, uh, elements of the Mormon Church, and I've also written about a drug conspiracy in Kentucky and organized crime in Las Vegas, Nevada. And um, so this is uh, not outside the realm of uh, what I've been doing for thirty five years. Yeah, uh, it, it's interesting. Now, now you say it's the fundamentalist, but and not the mainstream. But isn't sort of the mainstream really the offshoot because um, they wanted statehood, and in order to get that, they had to stop polygamy. But the a lot of the people that wanted to hold on to the original religion um, stayed into polygamy, into this lifestyle, uh, saying they weren't going to change. But a lot of Mormons changed. And that's kind of the change is the one we know as the the mainstream. But isn't this really more of the true faith? Well, I think that uh, certainly they would say that they would think so that th- this is the group. And we're talking back in the 1890s. Right. Uh, the the uh, polygamy was part of the uh, Mormon Church until the 1890s, when uh, in in exchange for statehood, uh, they had to abandon the practice. So uh, the it became with the what's known as the uh, Woodruff Manifesto. It became illegal for anybody for men to cohabit with um, more than one wife, and um, so many of those uh, what, who would see themselves as the true believers then uh, went to different outposts in the United States and uh, northern Mexico. So uh, they would, they could, you know, conceivably. I mean, it's now a hundred, more than a hundred years later, and um, the the uh, the the official mainstream church has millions and millions of members throughout the world, and this fundamentalist offshoot in Colonial Lebaron, which I write about, has five thousand. So um, it really is. Uh, not in the mainstream at all. No, no, it's not the mainstream. It's just it's kind of closer to how the religion started. I think is what I'm sort of right. Trying they, to I mean, they see themselves as the purest of that. Right, right. Because there's some of them in the states too. Um, Absolutely, some, some groups, quite a few, and so yeah, it's just interesting. Um, so now, is it is it any different uh, down in Colony um, in Mexico as compared to? The let's say the Mormons or the polygamists up here, like, do they live a different sort of style, even more so than what they would in America? Yeah, I haven't written a, a lot about the Colorado City or the Jeffs family. Uh, my sense was, you know, from the reporting that's been done and the things that I have read about it, they seem to be more um, kind of 19th century um, a pioneer lifestyle. Uh, the, the colony in uh, Colonia La Baron in Chihuahua that I write about is much more modernized and, uh, the, uh, uh, the women are, you know, they don't dress in the pioneer fashion. They're more, they more are, uh, like any other young women in, in the United States. And, and they, you know, 
they don't forswear alcohol like uh, the other Mormon mainstream and fundamentalists. And um, they just are a, a kind of a, a different sect unto themselves. Wow. So that that's interesting. So they wouldn't really stick out as as a group. Like if you saw a couple of the of the ladies that were part of this church. No, not did, at all. You not would just think all. they're just normal citizens. Like you're not going to go, wow, look at them. Um, so now this is an interesting story because back in late no, or in early November 2019, um, you're saying how a caravan and woman and children from the group got um, – basically attacked on the road. Um, maybe explain the basic story of that, and then we can build from there. Okay, well, the basic story is that these, as I said, these three young mothers and and uh, nine of their children and um, had actually there were 17 in total that uh, set out from uh, a village in Sonora, a, a state um, on the other, uh, just south of Arizona, they left there to drive to in in a caravan of three SUVs and and their children, and they left there to drive to um, uh, Colonia Labaran in the adjacent uh, state of Chihuahua over the Sierra Madre Range, and they did it frequently. These are the two groups are intermarried, even though Colonia Labaran dates back originally to the um, 1890s and then into the uh, 1940s, um, after, uh, the Mexican Revolution, the, the community in Lamora is relatively new and, and begun in the 1950s after the raids on the polygamists and the, and the colonies that you're talking about or the settlements in, in Colorado City and, and, uh, what, what was called Short Creek, but the, um, the uh so they're they're very different but they're interrelated by, uh, familially uh dating back generations and so they were accustomed to driving this road but it happened uh, one of the women one of the women was going uh north to phoenix to meet her husband and the other two were going to veer off and go over the mountains over to colonia labaran and chihuahua and just a few miles outside of lamora uh, the, the caravan came under attack and it was very violent and grisly and, um, basically these three women and their children were, um, were shot and in the case of one of the cars, uh, the first car carrying a woman named Ronita Miller LeBaron, uh, she and her four children were, uh, shot at, at um, shot and then their car was burned and, uh, and the Mexican officials determined that they had been burned alive. And so it was what I decided, you know, what I looked at were uh, the events and the characters involved. It was a, a, a you know, matter of overkill as far as the, the heinousness, of, heinousness and violence of the crime itself. But I, I became intrigued and, and sought to dig deeper into the murders themselves and also the relationship um, and uh, the behind-the-scenes um, uh, impulses and characters involved in it. And um, ultimately, you know, my question, my pursuit was, why were these unarmed women and innocent children on this dangerous road in the first place? Where were the men? Where were the husbands? This is, they had been warned. This is, as I said, one of the most violent and uh, uh, dangerous roads in the entire uh, world 
and uh, at the time, and the um, these uh, close knit families were accustomed to traveling with with guards and had been for several years. So I just you know was um, really curious about what led to these women and children being alone and unarmed in this, uh, in this, uh, um, you know, traversing this dangerous road at a time where what was clear was this was not a case of mistaken identity. That was clear from the beginning, from all of the uh, military, uh, Mexican military, Mexican police, and the families themselves. There was no case of mistaken identity. Uh, they were obviously targeted and uh, it wasn't the wrong place at the wrong time. They weren't caught in the crossfire between uh, warring cartels. Uh, they were targeted. And so I devote my entire book to trying to determine uh, why they were targeted and why they were uh, out there by themselves, kind of sacrificial, these the women and children. Well, do, do you think they were trying to leave the compound or, you know, to, to get away um, you know, I did not come up with any evidence to support that. That certainly came up at the uh, right after the massacre. It was so brutal and obviously uh, gained the attention of uh, media and the press from all over the world. There were many uh, rumors and theories that were floated at the time, uh, and that was one of them. But I, I, that is one that I gave less credence to than to a lot of the other theories. Well, do you think, um, was was there any reason the cartel would target them? Did they have a grudge against the uh, Mormon sect? No, there's absolutely, well, there's, there could be reasons that the cartels targeted them, but I don't think it has anything to do re with religion. They've been living there, um, you know, the, the Mormon colony and uh, Colonial Lebaron, uh predates the cartels. So does Lamora and Sonora. They predate the cartels. They've been living uh, next to um, major uh, drug growers and traffickers for, you know, the last 50 years. So this was a relation, a longstanding relationship. And they didn't, you know, the uh, cartels didn't just wake up one day and say, you know, we don't want any Mormon polygamists in our midst. Uh, they've been uh, living side by side, as I said, for decades. So um, that I don't think that uh, any kind of uh, prejudice or anti-Mormon uh, persecution plays any role in this. Mm. It's, it, the whole thing is kind of weird, but because um, did you get to the bottom of why they were traveling alone, like why they didn't have any of the men with them? Well, I don't, I, I didn't get to the bottom of that, except that, you know, the men went on to be very vocal, their husbands, and it seemed to me obvious, uh, not just uh, to me personally, but uh, from the evidence that I gathered and the numerous people that I interviewed, including law enforcement and drug enforcement agents on both sides of the border and on bo <laughs> both sides of the law, um, that uh, this was a message that was sent to um, the men in their lives. This was not, they, you know, there were between, uh, there are credible reports of Sicarios um, with armed, you know, automatic weapons, armed to the teeth, uh, as many as 50, and some say as many as 100 hit men uh, that went out to kill these women and children. And so 
that to me is a very strong message. What would their message be? Like, what do you, what would a, a, a bunch of Mormons be to a, to a gang of, of drug dealers? Like, you know, were they in their way? Were they causing trouble? What, like, what was it that bothered them? About well, as I said, they've been living next to each other for generations. And, uh, and there's uh, the Mormon colony, Colonial LeBaron. It's a very wealthy group of uh, pecan farmers and nut farmers and agricultural uh, developers and real estate developers. And so there were a lot of, there's a lot of conflicts between them and their neighbors that have nothing to do with their religion but have a lot to do with money and resources and uh, water. Uh, one of the the uh, most credible uh, theories posited from the be- from the beginning was that they were um, there were great tensions between the LeBaron family and um, their neighbors over the dwindling resources, getting more and more dwindling in this arid arid land. Uh, during climate change, when everyone is struggling for the same, for access to the same water, and we're talking about whole communities uh, that are surrounding them, that the water table is has been lowered uh, because of the use by the LeBaron uh, properties for these massive nut farms that take an extraordinary amount of water, and at the same time. The other influences, same influences, are competing for these same resources, be they the, the drug cartels, the drug growers, the transporters, the fentanyl, the methamphetamine uh, producers, the, the tequila, the agave plant producers, the avocado producers. Uh, there's a lot of people with multi-millions of dollars, billions of dollars at stake competing for the same natural resources and the LeBaron, uh, the colonial LeBaron and the, the leaders of that family are smack dab in the middle of uh, this environment that is a hotbed. Yeah, but I'm just wondering, so when they, when they do that, what, what changes were they expecting the men to do after killing a lot of their family members, do you think? Um. I'm not sure that it is over water, but it seems to me that they're sending a message either that they um, had, hadn't had done what they said they were going to do or um, they were um, threatening uh, with the hopes that they would change the, the course in some direction, be that water or agriculture. We at Wondery, creators of Dr. Death, Scamfluencers, and Over My Dead Body, go deeper into complex true crime stories to give you an inside look at the facts. And now we're launching the ultimate true crime fan destination, Exhibit C. It's truly criminal. Wondery's Exhibit C gives you the detective's lens of all of the evidence, taking you step-by-step through the twists and turns of each true crime case. Join the Exhibit C online community to access exclusive show merchandise, member-only content, and to hear directly from top criminal and social justice experts, witnesses, and investigators as they take us beyond the evidence and into the case file. Join now by following Wondery Exhibit C on Facebook or find us on the web at WonderyExhibitC.com and listen to true crime podcasts on Wondery and Amazon Music. 
Exhibit C. It's truly criminal. Culture or um, the, you know, it all coincides, which I, I deal with at great length in my book. It coincides with um, the incarceration of, of Joaquin uh, El Chapo Guzman, who is uh, is finally caught and uh, and jailed in the United States in the Supermax prison in Colorado that's in the summer of 2019. And until then, up until then, the everybody got along pretty well as long as uh, El Chapo's Sinaloa cartel was running things. And once, you know, on all of the colonies and uh, the colonies on both sides, both uh, in both states, uh, they had friendly relations with the checkpoints of the Sicario checkpoints. And and uh, it was, as they described it, it was a live and let live arrangement. Uh, well, once the uh, the drug wars came to the region and things were destabilized, I think there was a lot more uh, at stake. And there were a lot of there's a lot of conflicts between the encroachment from the La Linea, the, the, the uh, Juarez cartel. And coming up from the Jalisco New Generation, a lot of which is still going on now, but a lot of battles between um, rival cartels and the dominant Sinaloa cartel that's been dominant in the region for 30 years. And um, there was uh, uh, these people were in the way for some reason. And I think that's still you talk about a house of mystery. That's it. I mean. I didn't I didn't expect to solve the case when you've got, uh, you know, the Mexican government and uh, drug enforcement on both sides of the border and Mexican military. Uh, they still haven't solved it. It's an open case. They've arrested more than 50 people. And but nobody's been tried or uh, nobody's actually been charged unless it's happened in the last, you know, couple of months, nobody's been charged with the murder itself. Everybody who's been charged has been charged with affiliated with uh, being affiliated with organized crime and, and different factions. And, and I don't have the subpoena power that the Mexican government has. But uh, so I, I never really set out to solve the murders. No, I mean, I never fully expected to solve the murders expect, um, and, you know, completely, but I knew that it was, I was going to be able to show that they were targeted, that it was not mistaken identity, and that somebody was sending a, a message of uh, strength to the powerful forces in those communities. And those powerful forces were not um, women and children, babies on the road. Yeah. So um, at, at, at the end of the day, then, you're saying that no one's actually been tried or charged with the murders but do, do they know who held the guns and who actually did the killing or shooting they haven't charged anybody with that they've charged people with uh, i mean there was somebody who did a who had a, a cell phone video of the killings and and i think that the salt lake tribune i think nate carlisle at the salt lake tribune might have been the first uh, reporter to get a copy of that and the reporters the you know the first hand reporting on the ground the frontline reporting was was really um, exceptional, and um, but you know nobody followed through to including the Mexican government, um, which also uh, was not encouraging for the U.S. government to come in. I don't know if you remember, but at the time when this happened, 
uh, former President Trump immediately tried to use it as a pretext to uh, to invade Mexico and was uh, was was lobbied by the LeBaron family to designate the cartels as terrorists, which would give the United States um, the freedom to uh, invade Mexico, which was an enormously unpopular move. Well, in it's, it's ridiculous because if, if, if countries invaded the U.S. every time someone, nine people got shot, uh, the U.S. would be invaded constantly, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's you know, it's ridiculous. It's, uh, you can't go into another country or something, and it's pretty small. I mean, it's a terrible thing. But it's not like we're we're talking thousands and cities were being held hostage or something. We're just talking about a uh, a daily shooting. It's not an everyday thing in Mexico as well. No, no. So, but it's just like it's like a daily thing in the states. So, you know, um, that's just that's just um, macho talk. That's all that was Mm -hmm. Um, ridiculous. Um, but but at the end of the day, so no one's got charged. Um, do, Do you think that the government just doesn't? care or the government of Mexico doesn't want to charge these cartel people? You know, one of my, uh, one of my uh, deep inside sources was uh, Michael S.B. Hill, who's one of the, you know, highest level uh, drug enforcement agent, retired drug enforcement agent who was undercover in Mexico for, for 30 years. And, and um, you know, he said under the new president, Lopez Obrador, you know, he's got a, he's a very risk averse and non-conflict um, oriented president. His, uh, his, uh, um, his motto has been hugs, not bullets, um, and is not confronted. He's been very reluctant to confront the cartels. Uh, so, and as a matter of policy and, and, uh, so I think that contributes to it, but certainly, um, you know, Mexico is a land of conspiracy if you spend any time down there and, and more journalists are being killed down there right now than any other place in the world. Uh, it's not unusual. It's, it's rare. I guess um, back to Mike the Hill, the Hill said it's very rare to find, um, you know, to actually see anybody go to trial and go to jail and, and spend a life in jail at a high level. I'm talking not, you know, street punks. But it's very rare for uh, anything, anyone of a, in a case of this magnitude to actually be held accountable. Wow. So, so what do you know about the group themselves? Like, how, how would you describe their lifestyle before um, the shooting? Well, I mean, I really went into that because um, I'm, I'm descended from a long line of Mormon uh, polygamists. And uh, so that was one of the things that attracted my attention uh, to the story from the beginning, and I, I looked a lot. Of, I mean, the colony gives a comprehensive portrait of the, of the of the family itself, and and um, you know, it's a uniquely American religion based on male supremacy and female servitude. And I was uh, fortunate enough to get very deep inside the colony with sources among the women to to talk about. The lifestyle, but basically the polygamous men are have, I would say, an average of about four wives, some more, some less, and only like in the United States in Mexico, only the first wife is considered a legal a legal spouse. So everybody else and and the children, the other the subsequent wives and the children are considered um, property that belong to the the uh, patriarch of the family. 
And so, you know, they don't have social security cards and the men are mostly dual citizens and, and many of the first, the first wives are, and some of the children are dual, dual American Mexican citizens. But, um, most of the women and children don't have much free agency. Uh, their lives are dictated to them by their husbands and fathers. And, uh, many of the women are, you know, it, it's, a lot of the men, the women are holding down the fort in the colonies, while many of the men are um, working in the United States in in construction and and uh, the oil fields. And uh, so the women are overseeing the Mexican laborers, while uh, the men are in the United States. Wow, it's crazy! It's crazy that things like this can still go on. Uh, today, Very sad, you know. Um, now, Mitt Romney isn't he from a Mormon Mexican family? Is he from this area as well, or he's from uh, he's from the the original colonies that were sent down by Brigham Young, president of the church in the eighteen eighties, uh, settled up north uh, northern uh, Chihuahua, north of um, where Colonia Labaran is, but settled up north on closer to the Texas border and uh, to practice polygamy in the 1800s. But after the uh, Mexican Revolution, most of them left and went back to the United States, uh, joined the mainstream church and stayed in the United States. Many of them, including including the Romney, plant, Romney family, returned to northern uh, Chihuahua after the Mexican Revolution and went back onto their farms and and uh, into their, their homes that they had built. But at that point, uh, they were no longer practicing polygamy. So uh, then when the LeBaron family came um, back to the Mormon colonies up in uh, where the Romney family was, uh, they were ostracized for practicing polygamy because all of the old polygamists from, from the Romney compounds um, were uh, had joined the mainstream church, and in fact, there's a temple in in, in uh, that part of of Mexico, and and uh, so the LeBaron families were the LeBaron family was ostracized from the uh, previous polygamist who had um, joined the church. Wow, quite a story. What is, what is it that um, you hope people get out of the book when they read it? You know, I mean, that's, I don't, in addition to the humanity that was in play, it's a tar, it's a cautionary tale of the, the level of violence taking place that most, you know, just across our southern border that I think most Americans don't think about. Um, and, uh, and America plays a large role in this, not just in, well, in flooding Mexico with guns and, uh, and America's insatiable appetite for, for drugs. So, you know, there's this appetite for recreational drugs in the U.S. and an insatiable appetite for, for uh, guns in Mexico, for violent traffickers in Mexico. And there's an endless supply of high-caliber weapons uh, ready, ready to go down there and, uh, you know, enabling uh, the cartels to terrorize entire regions of the country. And it's very close to our back door. Yeah. A lot of people don't know about the story. The story came out, kind of came and went like everything else. Um, why do you think that is? Why isn't this sort of something that um, 
it's still talked about. I don't know. It kind of surprised me. I got on the story that, you know, the, the day it happened and, um, I just felt that it was uh, so horrendous. As you said, there's, you know, lots and lots of uh, bloodshed and mass murders and on both sides of the border. But this one with, you know, these young, beautiful uh, young mothers and and these innocent children just uh, in the middle of nowhere and uh, for no apparent reason just really struck a chord with me. And like I said, the, you know, the frontline reporters did a, a, a fantastic job on the scene, but I was surprised at how little follow-up there was later, um, you know, because there were Reuters and BBC and, you know, people came from all over the world to cover the story. Uh, and then the Mexican government put up a monument uh, to the victims in, I think, 2020, and that was, and then they, you know, arrested somebody from time to time, but that was the end of it. So that's why I decided to write the book about it, I guess. Did, did you find out anything about the lives of the victims? Of the, um, you know, the actual people who, who died? Yeah, I have uh, pretty extensive portraits of the women. Um, they were, you know, they were living, they were all uh, born and raised in polygamous families. Um, one of them is was a, in a political marriage. The other two uh, seems like they were not, or they were um, in their first marriage at least. Um, but you know, they were young women. Uh, Ronita was thirty years old, and and um, uh, already, you know, they were all young women who had already had multiple children. And so the lives of the women is who I really focused on. The lives of the men are kind of, um, you know. Uh, they're uh, they're obvious. They're out there, as you said. They're the macho guys that are busy with, uh, you know, in their in their enterprises, and um, you know, there's not much of a uh, of a secret to them as far as their, you know, they're kind of prosaic uh, macho men and uh, patriarchs. But the women, and you know, they were kind of predictable as well. Most of them, you know, they're they're uh, demure and. Um, they, as true believers, believe that their only avenue to um, the promised land or avenue to, to heaven is, uh, is uh, by being pulled, you know, through the veil, they call it, by their husband. So, um, you know, that was one of the, the things I, I guess I was looking at more than anything is, you know, why do these women submit and why do they continue to stay? Um, especially in this conflict at a time when their husbands and brothers and uncles are going to the United States to make money and they're exposed to a different lifestyle, different women and come home to, you know, it's more of an old, you know, a, well, first of all, this, this group had their own church, the church of the firstborn. So, um, but they were, you know, it's, it's very much an old Testament version of, of men and women and um i go in i mean it's it's got a lot in the, the book is is uh is full of different uh stories about the lifestyle down there and um and dating back to the to the 70s hmm. was there anything surprising that you found out that you you didn't expect to, to hear about well 
I think the biggest surprise is in the middle of it. You know, this is a three-year, nearly three-year research and writing um, project. And I think the the biggest surprise to me was coming across the the longstanding relationship between Colonia LeBaron and Nexium, the uh, sex cult from upstate New York. And it was, you know, the... It had been very, uh, this hadn't been widely reported and only mentioned on one obscure kind of Nexium blog. And then once by the Albany newspaper during uh, the criminal trial of Keith Ranieri, the leader of Nexium, and, uh, and the relationship between Nexium and Mexico and the relationship between the LeBarons, the LeBaron men and the, uh, a large peace movement in Mexico, but a peace movement that is uh, founded on uh, fully arming its citizens. So, I mean, there were a lot of, there were a lot of surprises, but that was, that was probably, you know, the one that that came up in the middle of everything. And and I thought, wow, now I have to turn my attention to a sex cult in America. (laughs) (laughs) Not one thing is another. Boy, <laughs> very interesting story. Very. Uh, did you get any pushback doing a story like this, or any any sort of people that didn't really want this coming out? Um, no, not not so far. I mean, I obviously I had to. Uh, there were a lot of people that were afraid for their lives in talking to me, and um, uh, but uh, I was really fortunate to get a lot of inside information. And um, there were a lot of people that wanted this story told. I would say there were a lot more of those than than those who didn't, or that I've heard heard from so far. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, so how do people find you? Like, what? what the book um, is out I, everywhere, but do you yeah, have a website? I do. It's uh, sallydenton.com, um, www.sallydenton.com, and my books are sold there. They're obviously everywhere, uh, Barnes & Noble and independent bookstores and Amazon and, you know, wherever wherever uh, books are. Well, great. Now. The Mexican edition uh, oh. coming out this, uh, this week, I believe. And there's a lot of interest in it in Mexico, possibly more in Mexico than the United States. But it's really, um, it's a very much a Mexican story. And Mexican uh, nationals are very interested in this uh, ultra-wealthy, um, sovereign uh, Mormon colony. And uh, so it's a, it's getting a lot of attention down there. Yeah, I guess it would. Well, um, now we'll have everything up on our website and so people can find it with one click. And uh, we really appreciate you coming on the show. Hey, thank um, you so much. I appreciate it. And now the book we're talking about is called The Colony, Faith and Blood in a Promised Land. Of course, the our guest is the author of that book, Sally Denton. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thanks, Sally. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Christopher Kimball, host of Milk Street Radio. 
If you'd like to change the way you cook and also think about food, please check out the Milk Street podcast. We travel around the world to find pizza in Tokyo, Egyptian food in Berlin, and Bhutanese farmers in Vermont. We speak to Jamie Oliver, Rachel Ray, Al Roker, Ina Garten, as well as Michael Twitty, Marcus Samuelson, and Alice Waters. And we'll introduce you to recipes that will change the way you cook, from bright pink Tottenham cake to Afghan dumplings to shoyu sugar steak, and that one is direct from Hawaii. It's a whole new world of food right here on Milk Street Radio. Please check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, or go to 177milkstreet.com. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.